Just last month, in June, Harvard University's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnography in Cambridge, Massachusetts, announced plans to return a pipe tomahawk that formerly belonged to a Ponca chief and civil rights icon, Standing Bear. The news was welcomed by Native Americans across the country, particularly the Ponca Nation and its members. But it didn't come out of nowhere, as one Oklahoma lawyer, Brett Chapman, who's an enrolled member of the Pawnee Nation with Ponca and Kiowa heritage, tweeted up a storm a few weeks ago, and the flurry online clearly caught the attention of the museum in question. And now it looks like the object is going home to Nebraska, where the Ponca Nation have a reservation. Reporter Cassie Packard wrote up the news for Hyperallergic, and you can find a link in the program notes. She mentions that Larry Wright Jr., the chairman of the Ponca tribe of Nebraska, explained the significance of this object to the Associated Press. He said, that's a piece of our history that represents who we are and why we're in Nebraska. So for it to be back home is very appropriate. This podcast is the story of that unique historical object and its long road home. Chapman joins us from his office in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to explain why this is as significant and why moral rights are often as important as legal rights to historical objects. So we're talking to Brett Chapman, who's an Oklahoma attorney and an enrolled member of the Pawnee Nation, as well as has heritage that is both Ponca as well as Kiowa. So great to talk to you, Brett. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Absolutely. Congratulations. It seems like there's progress after so many years in regards to Standing Bear and this, this precious object that is currently at the Peabody Museum at Harvard. I wonder if you could explain to us a little bit about what this object is and a little bit about its trajectory and importance. Yeah, I think it's a pipe slash tomahawk. Now, I think the provenance of this item, I believe that it was a diplomatic gift from the president of the United States that he gave to him probably in the year 1877 when he went to the White House, which I, you know, the, the make of these, obviously Native American nations there in Nebraska didn't have their own forgeries and they weren't making, you know, and blacksmiths. So these things are typically gifts from the government. And so, as a leader, this would have had a great value to him. And I think what you see here, and again, maybe Harvard has a different take on the provenance of it, but I'm pretty sure this is right. And so what you see here is when they moved his whole family and all the Poncas from Nebraska, forced him down here to Oklahoma, which is where I am now, you know, they took everything they had with them, what they could carry. And this was one of the things that he carried. So when you look at this, when his children were all killed on this and 200 of his people were killed as a result of this, he walks back to Nebraska and the president orders the army to apprehend him. And so once they do, he, uh, he gets a white attorney and they file for a petition for writ of habeas corpus in federal court there in Omaha and win. And so, you know, he's showing his gratitude after he wins by by giving him something that's truly important or at least valuable to him. And that's like the punk away, too. You don't just give something cheap to somebody. You give something good. You know, and that's kind of you give something good, you'll get something good in the future. Um, and so he gives this guy something valuable. And I think what's important here, what I told Harvard was, so I question the moral authority of um, their possession of it, because had this event never happened where they forcibly remove in violation of treaty, steal his land, kill all his people, he wouldn't have needed a white lawyer. And so, you know, that's important to remember. Right. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the actual court case and the importance of that case itself? Yeah, sure. So at the time, um, this happened 14 years after the Civil War. So I think everybody, even with a rudimentary knowledge of U.S. history, they're like, okay, well, there's before the Civil War and there's after. You know, okay, well, there was this original sin of slavery. And then after the Civil War, hey, we made it right. We gave all the black people rights, made them citizens. Okay, well, even that wasn't true. But um, with Native Americans, what people don't understand is what they came after us for was for our land. And so when someone, when you're trying to steal from somebody, you don't give them rights, you don't have them any legal recourse. And so when they're up there taking all this land from us, the only recourse Native Americans had was to resort, resort to warfare, uh, nation to nation. And so what happened with Standing Bear, this is again, 14 years after they freed all the enslaved people and passed the 14th Amendment, which is still very important to US society today, 11 years after they passed that. Now. Native Americans still lacked any standing in court. It had no basic human rights and no civil rights at all. And so when you look at Standing Bear in this instance, the government, the United States, um, was hauled into court by him basically because they had taken his land and they did all of this without authority of law. And in fact, it was in contravention of an act of Congress. Um, and so, you know, he raises his standing to have, you know, civil rights granted upon him. And the U.S. attorney at the time was like, well, you know, technically Indians, uh, they're not even persons do civil rights under our Constitution. And so, you know, they're still trying to argue that at the time. And so, you know, he ended up winning, which is great. Unfortunately, his attorneys, the handpicked attorneys by this editor who started all this white guy, white editor, meant well. Um, but he picked a couple corporate attorneys and not criminal attorneys. And so once they won this case they forgot to post a, an appellate bond, an appearance bond, because technically he didn't have to come back because he was uh, given his freedom. And so their, their mess up on this one procedural error resulted in finally, months later, the uh, U.S. attorney figuring this out because they were going to use this case as a way to get Native American civil rights to everybody, not just these 30 members of my family. And so they were going to appeal it to the Supreme Court. And um, it just took a long time. And finally, the U.S. attorney's like, hey, these guys didn't post that bond. Hey, let's just dismiss our appeal. And the U.S. Supreme Court can never hear it. And so they did. Wow. That's why Native Americans didn't get full citizenship in this country until 1924, because they continued as a result of this. What happened as a result of the Standing Bear case is people have probably read a little bit of knowledge about the Cherokees, that their first trail of tears. Mm -hmm. You know, there was some white people in this country that were appalled by that or tried to help. But after that, there was numerous removals where nobody tried to help. And that's because like Oklahoma here, they needed this land. Um, and so they didn't really care. And so what happened with Standing Bear, by the time my family and my tribe got removed, they'd already basically seize the territory of this entire continent. And so, you know, then they're all like, hey, whoa, what are we doing to these people? You know, wow, we're not giving them any rights. And so it was just good timing um, that they happened to have that done to them at the end. And again, it was in complete contravention of uh, authority of law. And so, you know, you had these people, these white people there in Boston and on the East Coast of their time, they would consider themselves progressive, but they were heavily you know, their worldview was heavily skewed by Christianity and uh, other things that are detrimental and turn out to be detrimental to Native American culture. But, you know, they're like, hey, well, we need to reform the laws here. Uh, let's uh, hold the Native Americans. Let's uh, get together with the uh, land thieves, the people that want to steal land. And let's make this compromise where we're going to say, hey, let's hold the Native American civil rights hostage for 25 years. Uh, unless you, uh, you know, take these individual plots of land, like if you look out here, everything's an individual plot of land. What I'm sitting on right here is an individual plot of land to break up all of this 
tribal land and give it to them one parcel at a time per person. And that's how they continue to steal everything else, this whole state of Oklahoma. And so, you know, it's just a real shame. I mean, that's the shame of it. And they knew, I, I strongly believe these people knew what they were doing back then too. They knew what they were doing. So is it clear that those attorneys accidentally didn't post that bond or was it, was it, I think it was, just think it was on purpose? Yeah. Okay. yeah, I don't think it was, they didn't know criminal law. One guy was a, he was a senior litigation attorney for like Union Pacific Railroad. He does, he's dealing with contracts, you know, he's not dealing with bonds and criminal law. And then the other guy just started and he was doing, you know, like banking law. So, I mean, they just didn't know. Right. And it's unfortunate too, but. And just a, on a point on that. So when did civil rights actually, were they extended to Native Americans? So they weren't extended in full until 1924. By that time, what happened is what in, after the Standing Bear case, as a direct result of it, these people on the East Coast that I mentioned that helped him out, um, they passed this law called the General Allotment Act or the Dawes Act. And what that was, was where they were going to say, hey, Native Americans, if you want civil rights, it's going to cost you land. Um, and so they made each person take an individual allotment of like 180 or 160 acres. And um, they held their rights hostage for numerous years because they thought that they weren't smart enough to manage their own money or that they might lose their land to like, you know, white people who would cheat them. And so with the direct result of this is for 30 years until from the Standing Bear case until the uh, Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, you had people here that had no full civil rights. And so, again, I have a good example of my great, great grandmother. When they removed us down here to Oklahoma, at the time, they didn't know that they popped us down on top of an oil patch. And so in 1910, actually, they, they struck oil on the Ponca Reservation. And my great, great grandmother, her name was Alberta Four Eyes. Actually, she became the richest woman in the state of Oklahoma when she died in 1927. You know, she's a millionaire off of this. And oh, wow. so at the, at the end, for the three years of that until 1924, they held that she was incompetent because she was a Native American woman. And so she had all the millions of dollars and she had very little authority to manage her own personal finances. And this, again, allowed for access of the government and other greedy people to steal it from her. Right. And so now tell me a little bit about the object itself when you see it. Have you seen it in person? I have um, not seen it in person, okay. but yeah, I've seen the, you know, it's the same one that's in the photographs and in that nice statue up there at the Capitol. So what do you think about it when you see it? Because I mean, it's a beautiful object, but I'm just oh, sure, curious yeah, if, there's any, if there's any specific association or maybe anything you can help illuminate about it that might have a certain significance that may not be, you know, clear to, uh, to the casual viewer. Yeah, well, I think to the casual viewer, what people probably don't know is the provenance of it. They're probably people are thinking back on their stereotypes of Native Americans like, oh, well, this guy probably used that tomahawk to kill some people. Well, you know, no, it was a, it was a diplomatic gift from the president of the United States. And um, that's the origin of it and why it was important to him, because what this did was, is he was a leader of the Ponca Nation and they use this like the peace medals he's wearing. Um, I got one uh, similar to it right here. You know, the presidents would give that to them and then this would they would wear and they would have on them. And it's, it's a diplomatic thing. It's a show uh, to their own people like, hey, I have a connection with this other person like that has the power and authority to help us out, you know, and that's how they get, you know, politics at home, basically domestic politics. And so that's to me the importance of the tomahawk and those medals he has. And so, you know, from a, a contemporary standpoint, you know, why I want him to give it back is to remind him first that we're still here. And second, you know, it creates a wonderful opportunity for the Poncas of today to celebrate this relationship between Standing Bear and this attorney, you know, and what they right, did right. together, you know. And I think that's really something that Harvard has no business doing because 
you know, the way they came into control of this object to exert their control over it was someone, this attorney had passed away, his wife sold it, and it just started getting into this whole sale ring. And the chain of custody was broken. So I felt no problem going after it because if it was still in that attorney's family, there's no way it would have said anything about it. Because, you know, that's the wishes of your ancestor. He didn't want Harvard to have it. He didn't even know they got it. Right. So out of curiosity, is there a special meaning to that little cutout kind of almost heart shape in the middle of the of the blade or the tomahawk? I think that's a common, again, I don't really know. He didn't put it there, I don't think. I've seen other pictures. There's one of him and like my great, great, great grandfather. And they, they all have similar type, you know, or it's a cross on there. I think it's the person, I think the person that made it was some, I don't know what you would call a person that makes that, like a, I don't know, like a Smith or something. I don't know that right, in right. Washington. So, I mean, they look pretty common. Totally. And can you tell us your your specific uh, connection to Standing Bear, just so people understand? Yeah. The different so sort of variables. Yeah. Uh, again, the Ponca the Ponca Nation at the time is a government, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're what would be tantamount to their president or the principal hereditary chief. That man was my great 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 grandfather. His name was White Eagle. And so the vice chief was Standing Bear, and those two were related. They had a common grandparent named Little Bear, so uh, a grandfather. And so that's they were basically cousins. And so they led this together and they went through this whole thing together. And, um, you know, Native Americans are very close people. Uh, kinship networks, very important. Mm -hmm. And so when these these designations of like direct descent, anything like that doesn't really matter as much, because when you look at my great, great grandfather, his son, Horse Chief Eagle, was the last hereditary chief of the Ponca. He survived this Trail of Tears, died in 1940. When he died, the Poncas of that day we're like, hey, we're just going to bury all the old ways with him. We're going to bury all of these artifacts, all this stuff. And so when you look at Standing Bear, he's got this picture. Every picture you see of him, he's got this immaculate uh, necklace, uh, grizzly bear claws. They buried that with him, you know, and his, his uncle, his uncle's necklace, buried that with him, buried his medals with him. And so had this tomahawk been in possession of the Poncas in 1940, it almost certainly would be buried with my great-great-grandfather. Something they didn't have the opportunity to do, but, you know, and that's unfortunate. But, you know, today we would thank Harvard for... For one, for, you know, I guess preserving it. And then for two, I think they should have already given it back the second they said they would. But that's a completely different story. I mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of the things I really find fascinating about this story is because it shows also the different reasons why objects should be repatriated or given back to different communities, because you're not arguing a legal right, but a moral right. Right. Here. And do you want to explain for people what that means? Yeah. So in this instance, there's a law. Uh, that was passed in 1990 or 1991, I forget which, but it's called the Native Americans Grave and Repatriation Act. And what this applies to is there's this whole history, basically grave robbing, that you would send Native American remains of Native Americans that were found or located or dug up. They're just sitting in, you know, University of Nebraska, this University of Tulsa. They're just sitting in anthropology departments, you know, and all these places all in those and so it is very disrespectful. And there's also funerary, it covers funerary objects. And so like if there's some necklace that's, uh, you know, was on a body when they buried it, that's covered too. What's not covered under this law are like, you know, something like these moccasins I've got here. That's a personal possession, right? It doesn't have any, it's not what's called an item of patrimony. What that means is, is one person can't give it away. It's such a valuable cultural artifact. One person doesn't have any standing to give that thing away. And so in the case of the tomahawk, in my opinion, it is a lawyer. And again, I don't practice NAGPRA. I don't do all that stuff. That's usually between the tribes. But from my reading of the law, that tomahawk and how I know he came into possession of it, that's a personal possession. And so, you know, if they wanted to really be 
jerks about it or to, you know, fight back, I think they would have won in a court case on it. But, you know, when you question their moral authority to have it, look, these Ponkas are still here. We're still here. Who, who has a more of a moral right to it, us or you? And they've already admitted, the museum director admitted or said she agreed with me um, in their student newspaper like two months ago. And so what I would ask at this point, if you agree with me that you don't have a moral right to have it or that we have a superior moral right, why not give it back immediately? Because what you're doing here is now we've acknowledged this is Ponca property. You've already said you're going to give it back by holding on to it and not giving it back forthwith and just making us go down there. Like, why do we have to go to you in Cambridge, however many miles, thousand miles away to go look at it, go look at our own property and then not even get to come home with it. And then you're going to continue telling us when you're going to give it back. You are exerting at that point that you are using and you are actually abusing your sole proprietary interest in that object, which you're saying you're going to give back. And I think that that is just absolutely absurd. And I think in this day and age, when we're talking about systemic white supremacy and how these things are just really pervasive. And I think we look at these things at like at a museum like Harvard or an institution like Harvard, we almost expect them to just run roughshod over the little guys or, you know, people of color, just anybody. It's just like a way of life in this country. Like, oh, well, yeah, you're going to get at the house of the runaround from a government or from them. And that's just not right. I mean, that it's, it's totally something they could have already given back. And let's say I had something in my possession here that belonged to Harvard, they wouldn't be asking for it. I would have already been arrested and indicted and it had already been back there, you know, and I'd be paying for that in my restitution or whatever. But it just the same rules that apply to regular people like us need to apply to them. Uh, that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think I, I just want to mention for people who may not know your Twitter feed, which is fantastic, Brett A. Chapman. Everyone should uh -huh. follow you. I, I learned so much from your tweets. A lot of this started through tweets. Yeah, Correct. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I do is I advocate through my practice for Native American rights. And again, I have this ancestor who did this great thing. And so I found that, you know, even though I'm just a regular attorney as anybody else, like that gives you some people will listen because you've got this uh, what they perceive to be like authority or something on it. And so, you know, I use that to teach people about contemporary Native Americans in this country and the issues that we face. And so, again, that's why I raised this thing with this tomahawk. Because I know that, you know, museums and repatriation of objects is a real big deal because we're talking about, you know, this country like Black Lives Matter and so on reconciling with its past. I mean, it's very, very timely. And so, you know, I knew this would be a good way because of Standing Bear's uh, historical importance to the United States history, being the first Native American to win civil rights, to uh, remind people that we're still here and that these issues like, hey, you know, they need to give it back. And then for one, as I keep trying to say here. I think it's absolutely absurd they haven't already given it back because I think at a certain point it starts transforming into knowingly concealing stolen property because what are we supposed to do? Just wait forever? Like, you know, they, when is it when is it theft again? Is it the moment they said they were going to give it back and didn't do it? Is it today? Is it three months from now? Is it two years from now? When is it? Because we all want it back. No one, you don't think any Ponca in the world is like, oh yeah, hey, let's just listen to what they have to say and let them tell us what to do. That's absurd. You know, and the reason that it looks this way is because there's such a disparity in power. You have Harvard with all these billions of dollars in their trust and all this prestige of their name. And then you got some Indians out here in Oklahoma asking for something back, you know? 
Right. Well, I mean, I also want to say, mention to people, you're being very humble because I think it's not just because you're an attorney, but through the years on Twitter, you've really been building alliances and and helping people amplify their message. And so, you know, I, I don't want people to think that this is so incidental. This is part of a sustained online advocacy you do. I want people to be aware of that. So I did read the letter from the museum um, head, and it mentions there's a planned visit in September to the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and ethnography at Harvard University. Will you be part of that group or do you I know? So, yeah, I hope that? so. No. I mean, but again, I'll, I'll just reiterate, that would be like me having something in their possession that's theirs in my possession saying, hey, y'all can fly out. We can talk about giving it back. I agree to give it back to you. You guys can fly out in six months here to Tulsa. Come on up. I'll show it to you. You can inspect it. We'll talk. Then you leave. We'll keep talking. I mean, that's just so absurd. But to make them, you're exerting, again, your proprietary interest when you're making us fly to you. I don't care who pays for it because it's still time. Time is money. And you make us go to you. That's like calling someone into your office. Like if I was to call a client in my office, I was mad at them. You know, you're kind of power playing them. That's what they're doing to us. And so, again, they should be the ones bringing it out here to us, bringing it out here for good. Got it. So the suggestion is that the object will eventually be at the Ponca Tribal Museum in Nebraska. I wanted to ask you what your hope and dreams are for this object. Yeah, no, that's what I want. I mean, I don't I don't care where it goes back as long as it goes back to one of the Ponca tribes in Nebraska and has the better claim to it, I think. And I think, again, you know, being a realist, I know that art theft, theft is a big deal um, and that happens. But Harvard cannot have, cannot maintain proprietary interest in this thing trying to dictate. That's not their worry. If they gave it back to us and it got stolen tomorrow, that is not their worry because that item belongs to us. And I mean, you can't, that's like a, that paternalistic desire to kind of like make sure these, uh, you know, Indians or these minorities know what they're doing. It's just so embedded. Just give it back. If it gets stolen, it gets stolen. I mean, unfortunate, right. but you know, it's not. You know, but again, you know, it's not like you're saying to them, like the Ponca tribe in Nebraska, we don't trust you to take care of your own stuff. Like, I mean, that's just condescending. Well, I think we've seen similar things with other countries asking for objects from the British Museum where there's this very paternalistic attitude. Well, could they take care of it as if, you know, the society that created it couldn't take care of something, you know? All right. Or, you know, that's like, what I was it. saying. Yeah. I was like, hey, if I wanted to put that thing in my bathroom, you know, that would still, as a Ponca, any Ponca would have more of a right to do that. And then Harvard would to keep it in their, you know, their hermetically sealed glass case or whatever that costs how much money. I mean, that's just that's what needs to be centered here. Not, you know, I'm glad that they agreed to give it back, but they just getting so much praise for it. And like you haven't given anything back yet. And to me, at a certain point, it transforms into to theft or at least withholding stolen property. Got it. Well, thank you, Brett. This was uh, great. And you helped educate us about the importance of this. And I hope this is one of many objects that are returned to their rightful owners. Yeah, absolutely. Again, and that's another reason why I said I did this, because there's so many of these things. And it's not just Native Americans. There's other other cultures out there that these museums like this, they just run roughshod over and they think that they own it. And so it's like almost like it just it's like adverse possession. Like they just, oh, well, we've always had it. So it's ours, you know, and like you just need to know that's not the way. Great. Thanks again. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. My name is Harag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening. 